Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the SCANA studio today are Professor Pat Sullivan from the University of South Carolina History Department, where she is also director of the History Center, and Professor Bobby Donaldson, professor of history, and also the director of the Columbia SC-63 History Project. Welcome back to the journal, both of you. Thank you very much. Thank you. We're here for a number of reasons, but this conversation originally started as this is the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which literally changed the political scene, uh, not just in South Carolina, but nationally. So where are we 50 years out? Uh, well, better question, where were we then in 1965? Bobby? Well, I think it's correct to say that the Voting Rights uh, Bill was a milestone achievement of the long civil rights struggle, uh, it was transformative, mm -hmm. um, to say the least. But I think as we reflect on the milestone and commemorate the 5th of anniversary, we should be mindful to look really closely at the long grassroots struggle uh, for voting rights and opportunity. And if anything, the voting rights bill uh, simply affirmed the hopes and ambitions of, of disfranchised people over the last century. Um, and so for many, it was a, it was a signal achievement but it was also eye-opening that even though you had this important federal legislation, uh, impediments remained uh, and still remain. Okay. Pat, in, in view of your history of the NAACP, and particularly here in South Carolina, folks didn't realize until actually the last 10 years or so how active the NAACP was in South Carolina beginning in the 1930s. No, that's right. I mean, the, the Voting Rights Act was really a crowning achievement of um, a number of the struggles that the NACP uh, really orchestrated across several decades. And South Carolina was um, a major battlefront in that struggle. I mean, the leadership in this state was uh, exemplary and, and really hasn't gotten the attention it, it deserves as we try to understand, as, as Dr. Donaldson said, how, uh, how this came about. Uh, you know, people like John McRae and Majeska Simpkins and Judge Wadey's wearing, you know, back to the white primary case, which was such an important Supreme Court win in 1944. So I think that, uh, you know, what preceded 1965 is really important to understanding, you know, what it took to secure a, a piece of legislation that truly was transformative, but also has to be renewed. It's about each generation, you know, renewing a commitment and, and uh, understanding uh, the history, the importance of voting, and when you think how what people gave up, you know, someone like a George Elmore in this state, who was a plaintiff in a case in the 1940s, um, uh, it's uh, you know it's very instructive and inspiring, and and it really challenges us today as we look at some of the the uh, issues we're struggling with mm -hmm. still. People today don't understand how difficult it was to register to vote in the American South if you were a person of color. But I'll just share my story. I, t I turned 21 in 1964. This is before the Voting Rights Act, and I'm registering to vote in Mobile, Alabama, my hometown. State law required that a registered voter accompany me to the registrar's office. Uh, my grandmother did. She was absolutely incensed that this was a requirement, but think what this does to working people. Mm -hmm. Okay. There were federal marshals already in the registrar's office, and they had two tests two piles of tests, one clearly for white folks and one for persons of color. Well, I got one that was, it was almost a full-page, single-spaced 
piece of the Alabama State Constitution on which I was to write an explanation. I wrote a couple of sentences and I was passed, but that clearly was designed to keep. It was something to do, if I remember, about interest rates and only only some lawyers could really understand mm-hmm. what it what it was, mm-hmm. uh, because the voting law in Alabama then said you had to be able to explain portions of the Constitution, mm-hmm. and I just remember the marshals they were they were making the the registrar take you know alternate sides or whatever, and I got <laughs> you got that I got that, mm-hmm. but imagine how easy that was to say. You didn't explain why the interest rates on such sessions, therefore you're not allowed to vote. Or what happened in rural counties, especially in South Carolina, is a a black person would be in line, uh, and we've got many testimony uh, examples of this, close it down and go to lunch and stay at lunch for Mm -hmm. the rest of the day, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Well, that also underscores, I think, why there was a great deal of uh, hope invested in the ruling in 1965, because... All that you just described was felt throughout the state in every corner among generations of people who saw those rules as um, intentional, um, highly subjective, from poll taxes to literacy tests to other sorts of impediments that people encountered on a regular basis. Um, and, And what was ironic is that the Voting Rights Act was an affirmation of the 14th and 15th Amendments. And here are African Americans and others who are waiting for the nation to realize promises from a century before where there became all sorts of ingenious, creative ways to circumvent uh, rights and responsibilities that people thought were already uh, on the books. One of the aspects of the Voting Rights Act, it was just not directed at the American South. If I remember rightly, it was any voting area where less than 50 percent of the eligible population was not registered to vote. So you had pockets all over the country Mm -hmm. where uh, federal law was going to right. make sure that people were allowed to vote. Right. That's right. And Section 2 applied across the country, you know, barring discrimination um, in voting. Pat, the Supreme Court has recently made a decision concerning the review by federal government of state laws that might have an impact on elections. Is that not correct? That's right. Well, the Supreme Court's ruling in the case that came from Uh, Alabama, Shelby, Shelby Shelby County versus Holder, uh, that the court ruled on uh, in 2013, I think, that overturned, you know, Section 5, the preclearance, where you would have to submit for these places that you described, Mm -hmm. where, you know, more than 50 percent of people barred from voting, if you were going to make any changes in voting procedures, the Justice Department had to review them. Mm -hmm. And... uh, what uh, the court ruled, uh, overturning the lower courts, was that they really looked at Section 4, which identified those places that had been, were subject to preclearance. Most of them were in the South, as you point out, Walter, not all of them, but the large uh, number of them were. And so the court ruled that, that uh, they overturned Section 4, which, in effect, really undermine the application of section of, of preclearance so that you you wouldn't have to go before the Justice Department, for instance, if you had some of the methods, controversial methods used uh, recently. And so that uh, really gutted one of the most mm. important provisions of the Voting Rights Act. Mm. And that's why you had people uh, like the congressman from Atlanta, John Lewis, and others who, who understood intimately the history 
of how the Voting Rights Act came into being who were quite adamant that when the Supreme Court ruling came down that it was a, an effort to undermine and to gut, and those are the words that he used, a basic uh, principle of the Voting Rights Act, but also the voting rights struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, because part of it was that there were certain areas that were identified where there were existing uh, discrimination, patterns of discrimination, uh, including South Carolina and Alabama. And it was in the minds of many civil rights proponents that, that we've not fully turned that corner, uh, that we can make the claim that those patterns don't exist and persist presently. Well, the Supreme Court actually affirmed the, the Shelby County uh, claims and, so, uh, and made the argument that although discrimination exists, it's, never, it's not on the level from 50 years ago and therefore do not require the intervention of the federal government as overseeing these districts. I guess that then raises the issue that you, you see in uh, news magazines and the national media have for the last five or ten years. Are we in a post-racial America? Is that a colorblind America, Pat? That's what I think Supreme Court, uh, the Chief Justice would probably be arguing. I mean, he, he is someone who uh, insists on, on that that approach, which really is, is it ignores history. And that's, uh, you know, so part of the argument to uh, undo these provisions that we, we've taken care of it, it's settled. Uh, so I think you're exactly right. That sort of the, the, what are the lines of argument and, and dispute around, around uh, these issues? But I think that in the, the Shelby case, uh, there's a really uh, very important dissent written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg you know, which points that now, now one of the, the, the appeal of that overturning Section 4 is that they could argue, well, it's, you know, it really singles out mostly the southern states. And, and there are problems around the country, uh, disputes around voter ID laws. Pennsylvania is one of the places you pointed out. New Jersey earlier, we were talking about that. So this isn't just a southern issue in terms of attempting to uh, restrict access to voting. But um, as, as, uh, Chief, uh, as Justice Ginsburg pointed out, that in the last, from 1982 to 2004, I think it was, there were more cases brought under Section 2, which charges discrimination, you know, after something has changed, charges discrimination in voting procedures uh, than in the previous period, and that 52% of them came from southern states, which had only 52% that were ruled discriminatory, which have only 25% of the population. So I guess the argument is, you know, don't do away with <laughs> Section 4, but maybe expand it to be more, to really address problems around around the country. But what the court did, and I think your point, Walter, about colorblind, is to just remove this provision, which now puts the burden on people to bring suit after the law has changed and then after they've been denied full access to voting rights. In many ways, looking back historically, the civil rights movement, I don't want to say that, that the Voting Rights Act was the culmination, but it certainly was a high point. As you moved into school desegregation and you got into places like Cicero, Illinois, and South Boston, what have you, once it was no longer just a Southern issue but a national issue, uh, I've forgotten who the politician was, said that just threw all the sand into the gears and everything came to a halt or certainly slowed down. But I, I think, too, that as if we go back to 65, so on August 6, mm-hmm. um, there is this uh, sort of poignant moment where Lyndon Johnson signs a voting rights bill and he passes pins uh, to a number of individuals, Rosa Parks, mm-hmm. Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, 
who were integral in, in making this legislation possible. And it is a cross-section of Republicans and Democrats, uh, some who are moderate champions of the, of the bill, some who are vocal and loud champions. But we should take note that on that date, 50 years ago, not one member of the South Carolina delegation was there. In fact, that afternoon, um, uh, Senator Strom Thurmond, a, a newly minted Republican, uh, goes and gives a press conference and says that this bill uh, is the worst constitutional measure since Reconstruction. Um, and he's championed uh, by people like Donald Russell and others. Um, Donald, and, Donald Russell, who was who, then— Who, who recent, recently assumed— Self-appointed senator. Well, not quite. <laughs> after the death of Olin Johnston. But it, but it showed that, that, that as much as this was a milestone piece, even within our own state— there were those who were adamant that this was uh, not in the best interest of South Carolina and not in the best interest of the nation, while at the same time, in places like Bamberg, Allendale, Calhoun County, Williamsburg County, there is active voter registration and voter education happening in these rural areas uh, in the hopes that once this measure is enacted, mm -hmm. that African Americans will be duly registered to vote. And they did literally after this register to vote by the tens of thousands, not just by the thousands, right. and, and change the political dynamic in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And across the South. I mean, right. more elected black officials in this part of the country than, than throughout the country. Right. I mean, it was uh, transformative in ways. It contested right. uh, sort of from the start in, in certain ways yeah, as well. But I think that as we look at these, what we see are the national, the, the consequences of these, of these national measures that part of what I see about the voting rights bill is that it opens the door to what was already a, a groundswell of activity um, mm -hmm. happening uh, in, in places like South Carolina and other parts of the South where people were mobilizing. Um, they were preparing. I mean, African Americans in this state were actively involved in voter education and registration long before this, but this gives the impetus for uh, a real momentum um, that people, I'm sure, like Strom Thurmond and others, really feared would change the, the calculus of the state. And I think someone like Fritz Hollings discovers that well, in 1966. Well, well let's, t let's talk about that because that background here in South Carolina, as mm -hmm. we mentioned earlier, is pretty much an, not necessarily an untold story, but an unknown story to the vast majority of South Carolinians, black and white. Mm -hmm. Bobby, so let's, you want to back up a little bit and let's talk about what was going on in South Carolina in the 50s and 60s in terms of the civil rights movement as you say, the black community was beginning to mobilize towards this day. Mm -hmm. But I think the whole the whole effort to dismantle Jim Crow broadly and to see it in all of its elements was was something I think the the NACP of South Carolina was really distinguished in, in sort of envisioning the long road to to unravel. So that I mean, if you look from voter registration in the '40s and '50s, mm -hmm. um, efforts to equalize the salaries of teachers. Um, efforts to gain access into institutions of higher education, like the University of South Carolina, and a series of efforts in that which, which have been largely overlooked or forgotten before we get into the sort of classic phase of the 1960s, that these were um, important steps being um, established during that time period. There's a woman who's, who's still living and very active in Columbia named Donella Brown Wilson, who's 106 years old, who voted in the last city election of Columbia was determined to do so because she knew George Elmore in 1946, was his neighbor. Um, and in 1948, she's among the first African-Americans 
to be able to vote in the Democratic primary. I mean, I think she, she, I think she is one of those people who is a living witness to the long struggle uh, for voting opportunity, and now sees those struggles being undermined. Well, well, let's talk about that 1948 primary, the the, the abolition of the all-white primary. And there is that very graphic photograph of African Americans mm-hmm. at the ward that are literally lined up as far as you can see mm-hmm. to the horizon. Because prior to that, South Carolina Democratic Party had said it was a private. Mm-hmm. It, it hadn't said that until after a case in Texas. And Pat, right. you might want to. No, that's right. The, uh, the struggle against the white primary, uh, the all-white primary, was a long struggle, legal struggle, in terms of the NAACP and Texas. Uh, was sort of the the center of it for tw- for twenty years, but South Carolina. You know what 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 Bobby has described. Uh, you know, in this state, you saw this wonderful convergence of this brilliant legal talent that was sort of figuring out how to go into court. You know, people really underestimate how important that was, and and the patience and 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 the real you know brilliance about constitutional law, but also getting the confidence of these communities. Uh, around South Carolina and the South that took a big risk to step up and challenge these restrictions. Uh, so Texas was the place that, you know, for the fourth time, the Supreme Court ruled in 1944, and after all of the trying to get around previous rulings, and that really put the put put an end to it. But in, in South Carolina, Owen Johnston called a special session, I think that's what you're uh, alluding to, Walter, to uh, take all the laws off the book and try to find a way that South Carolina could get around this ruling and say it just applied to Texas. And in fact, that special session of our General Assembly, I think there were more than 100 pieces of legislation passed in no time so that any reference to the Democratic Party running elections, it was it became a private club. That's what they were trying to do. That's right. To, to, to get around. That's right. But, you know, in response to that, you had sitting in the gallery John McRae, who was the editor of the Lighthouse and Informer, uh, and active in the NAACP, and Osceola McCain, who was a, an activist uh, here in the state for civil rights with the NAACP. And they formed, as um, many of your listeners may know, the Progressive Democratic Party because they were determined to participate in 1944. And even though the state was busy blocking them from voting, they took a delegation to the Democratic Convention 20 years before the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. South Carolina Progressive Democratic Party went to Chicago and said to the National Democratic Party, we are open to everyone. We represent the Democratic Party. And they made their case. And as 20 years later, they didn't get much further than that. But it just, it, it really electrified people here. And they came back. They ran Osceola McCain for the U.S. Senate on their ticket. And we can say a little bit more about the George Elmore case. George Elmore brought a case, and Judge Wade's Waring uh, finally instructed the state uh, leadership of the Democratic Party that, yes, this ruling applied to South Carolina. And if they weren't going to abide by it, he would be, you know, sending people to prison, probably. Mm-hmm. But I want to mention one thing about the voting in that period. The number of registered black voters in South Carolina, in 1940, there were 3,500. By 1950, there were 50,000. Mm-hmm. So that whole push, again, as Bobby's pointing out, this groundswell with every opening. And, and 200,000 as we move toward the mid-1960s. So th- that is an astounding statistic given the difficulty it was to register to vote. Now, there were some places, Richland County, I think, was a little bit more open or less restrictive because a number of those 50,000, a a goodly number, were in the 
the urban areas. Mm-hmm. Isn't that's, that right? That's true. And, yes. But even in Richland County, so if, we, if we're looking at the voting rights bill August 6, 65, the very next day, the Richland County uh, election officials were ready to still administer the literacy test until they had heard otherwise. Um, so I think this, it shows you that as much as this is a turning point, there were still people who were really adamant that the status quo remained. Now, one ironic piece about the Progressive Democratic Party that shows you the real shifts politically is that in the mid-1940s, many African Americans were Republican. And indeed, one of the leading voices of the Republican Party in the mid-40s was a businessman named I.S. Levy. Mm -hmm. Well, in 1964, during the rise of the Barry Goldwater movement within the Republican Party, which, which really gives that party a very different face and voice, it is in 1965 that I.S. Levy says, let's now engage in voter registration and mobilization to increase the Democratic base of South Carolina. Now, he was actually at the 64 convention, was yes. he? And was dismayed by what he had heard, given his own history in the party of Lincoln. And, and so most of those 3,500 voters in 1940 would have been voting Republican? I'm not sure because uh, that's a very important point, though, that Bobby raises. But Franklin Roosevelt, mm-hmm. you know, one of the first people I interviewed as a graduate student was Majeska Simpkins. And she told me President Roosevelt took the jug by the handle. He gave people who were down and out. And so she she talked about how New Deal programs and just the, the rhetoric and the Democratic vision of, of the New Deal and the people working in the New Deal really opened up the Democratic Party in ways where African-Americans living in South Carolina could claim the National Democratic Party as something different from the state Democratic Party. So that's when you see this beginning of this realignment. But again, as Bobby points out, many African-Americans continued to vote Republican. But there's a major shift into the National Democratic Party. And a lot of the battles that will unfold over the next 20 years happen within the Democratic Party. That's around this legislation for civil rights acts. Although, again, it's Eisenhower who pushes for the Civil Rights Act of 57 and 1960. So, you know, th- this this tension between black voters and Southern Democrats and everything is in flux uh, during this time mm-hmm. as people are struggling to, to get these rights. You mentioned the signing of the bill, and I'm trying to remember, but, but I believe Everett Dirksen was in that photograph, was he not? I think he was. From yeah. Illinois, uh, minority leader in the, the Senate, uh, the voice of the Republican Party for decades, uh, but a supporter of the Voting Rights Act. Mm-hmm. We've mentioned George Elmore several times, so let's let's talk a little bit about that case in the in the late forties. Well, I think George Elmore is one of those unsung heroes, as Dr. Sull- Sullivan mentioned. Uh, he too was part of the Progressive Democratic Party, uh, very close to Yosemite McCain and, and John McRae. And so, when the the move happened to transform the Democratic Party to a private party, the NACP and others are already looking for. Uh, ways to legally intervene and to challenge um, the, the all-white primary. And George Elmore is one of those persons, among many, uh, who seek uh, to, to make an effort to, un- to undo this, this ruling. Now, George Elmore was unique in that he was already a known sort of uh, operating activist uh, in, in the local wards. He was a, a business person, uh, but he also was of a light complexion. And so he, unlike so many, were able to put his name on the rolls which became that wedge um, that leads to um, Harold Boulware, an, an, another unsung figure, joining the National NAACP um, to devise a legal case um, to challenge the all-white primary. And ultimately, through a ruling of Judge uh, J. Wade's wearing of Charleston, 
it is a ruling Elmore v. Rice um, that brings to an end um, the legal sanctioning of an all-white pr- primary in, in the state of South Carolina. And Waring also made a very famous, there's a very famous quote in his decision in which one of you wants, to, you're both smiling, who wants to, who wants to well, say? Well, the quote I remember that is now time for South Carolina to, to rejoin the union. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, which was, a, was a, and if you think about it, here is a patrician white South Carolinian with, with deep roots. Um, everything about his background and his circumstances would suggest that he would be a staunch defender of the status quo. And he proves to be quite different to the dismay of many of his peers in his circle. And he is ostracized mm-hmm. and ultimately leaves the state um, in disgrace among certain cohorts, but idolized uh, among others. Yes, but there's now a statue of him right. at, on the federal courthouse grounds in Charleston. And the courthouse is now, thanks right. to uh, Sen- Senator Hollings' name for Jay Wade's work. And this is ironic because here is someone I mean, talk about someone who had political transformations. Ernest Fritz Hollings embodies that in so many degrees because he is someone who benefits politically from the voting rights bill. And he is someone who's able to undermine Donald Russell in part because of support among African-American voters. And so the irony is Senator Hollings sends forth uh, a message saying he agrees with the renaming of the federal courthouse, which, which bore his name to be named for Jay Wade is wearing. In fact, he initiated that, right. as far as I know. I mean, he, uh, how often do we hear that, <laughs> of someone having their name uh, replaced by the name of another? And um, uh, Jay Wade is wearing, who, who that was the courtroom where he sat in Charleston. So that just happened and, recently. And, and when we speak of naming of courthouses, what is the name of the federal courthouse in Richland County? J. Matthew Perry. His his name of Matthew Perry, one of the lead legal minds, who was, Mm -hmm. I think, one of the the founders of a new South Carolina uh, in some respects. Um, I mean, of course, in the naming of the Matthew Perry courthouse was a political hot potato as well uh, when uh, Senator Senator, um, Strom Thurmond took exception uh, to to it being named after him. But there were others like Congressman James Clyburn who really pushed for that courthouse um, to be named in someone who played an, an integral role uh, in the transformations of our state. We need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Professors Pat Sullivan and Bobby Donaldson of the University of South Carolina about the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act and what was going on here in South Carolina prior to that point. So let's get back to this, what some people would consider ancient history, but this is such an important part of the, the history of our state. And you've quoted Senator Thurmond. He wasn't, you know, you mentioned he was not particularly favorable to having the courthouse named. But once there are black voters, Senator Thurmond begins to, to court black voters. He's actually the first member of the congressional delegation from the South to hire a person of color. Mm-hmm. In some of his reelection campaigns, you have civil rights activists like Victoria DeLee who support him because. He had helped her with Head Start programs and kindergarten programs in the Low Country, and she said he was her senator. So how do you deal with all? Of, I mean, it's that's called the power of the black vote, I think, <laughs> <laughs> and it's fascinating to think about that. Right. But it's, um, and as, I mean, see these unusual coalitions. If you go back mm-hmm. into the the emergence of Ronald Reagan, or the, as a as a really viable presidential candidate, to see some of the unique coupling of civil rights veterans like Hosea Williams or Ralph Abernathy signing on to his campaign, um, you, you kind of wonder what sort of calculations are being made as a consequence. And Thurman could count votes, of course, 
Uh, and he, he understood the, the power of constituent service. Um, and I think that enabled his long tenure uh, as, as, a, as, as uh, an incumbent in South Carolina. Well, that's what makes our state's history a little bit complicated for outsiders to understand. Because <laughs> I can remember when I first used that Victoria DeLee quote in, in my history, people said, that just can't possibly be mm-hmm. true. Well, but it was. And it's all contextual, you know. I mean, what, what's the state of, of politics at that point? But, but I think, um, you know, Dr. Donaldson's point about he could, he could count votes. And I interviewed Strom Thurmond as a graduate student, and he, uh, you know, pointed out all of these awards he had received from black organizations. And I didn't mention it, but I noticed they were all after 1965. But, you know, good. Um, but I think it's interesting. I mean, when I think of someone like George Wallace, maybe we don't want to go to Alabama, but you know, his history was just so, um, in that state, just deadly. And, and even he attempts to pivot, and to some extent, you know, the capacity for people to forgive and accept his, um, it's interesting. But again, it's all a product of a particular moment. And I think, too, that I mean, although the, the unique coalitions around someone like Thurman, which some sort of view as ironic or uh, sort of scratched their heads, that's the headline story on the front page. But let's flip the page and look back in some of the, the B sections. And you see individuals largely who do not get the sort of limelight still struggling in this state, who see little or modest progress, whether it's in housing, education, health care. And I think that is what I think part of the, the ongoing struggle in South Carolina was and remains, is that although you have these long-standing incumbents who develop these powerful political coalitions, there is still, in small local areas, people who see a different state, who experience a different lifestyle, mm-hmm. who are calling for a different level of change. Um, and I think that cannot be overlooked as we talk about Senator Hollings and, and Thurman and their efforts to, to gain African-American voting support. Well, Pat, you, in your study, uh, obviously you dealt a great deal with the South Carolina NAACP. And I remember before your book came out, Peter Lau had done Oh, Peter has his, a wonderful his, book. Yeah. Uh, his his story, and uh, among the things he uncovered was the image of the NAACP was the school teachers, the black businessmen, but Lau and and it was in the archives, and the university mm-hmm. has the microfilm of the, those archives, NAACP archives. If you if you went to rural counties, you had people who were maids, who were day laborers, who were giving their nickel or their dime dues who literally, by even joining the organization, mm-hmm. were putting not just an employment, but in some cases their lives in danger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, that was a story of it wasn't just the black elite, it was the black community. And that's what I don't think people still have gathered. They haven't. And I think it's a terrible um, over... It really is very important to understand what we're talking about today in terms of the great achievements of the 1960s is the infrastructure that built across a generation or two where you had this, again, amazing legal talent and connecting with people in, in, in these communities who were going to have to put it on the line, you know. And, and when you think of, I know we're going to talk about voting, but when you think of Brown, that's a 20-year period from 1934 when Charles Houston came here with his movie camera and filmed the condition of schools in one of the counties over by Rock Hill. And 1954, the, the the Supreme Court decision in Brown, and of course the critical role of, of Briggs and of Clarendon County 
uh, rural people who trusted the lawyers and really believed that they could make things better for their children and were willing to risk everything. And, and South Carolina was a, a major state where this really came together in such a powerful way that had imp consequences in terms of the Brown ruling and also in terms of voting. So I think it's, it's really important to try to bring that to the fore because if people look around today and think about all the problems, you know, we, every generation faces challenges. If you're thinking about trying to change things, history shows how that happens, and it's not on television. <laughs> you know, it's really the day-to-day. -day. I know most of our listeners out there are probably familiar with both Briggs and the Brown cases, but let's talk about those just a little bit. The Clarendon County School cases, Briggs versus Elliott, which was a challenge to get, well, it started out, the, fr the first case was school buses. School bus. Well, it, st it starts out in an effort to get equal transportation, uh, and with con uh, ongoing communications and collaborations between Reverend J. Delane, who was one of the leading voices in, in Clarendon County, the Palmetto Education Association, Harold Bulwer, NACP, it grows. It, it, it moves beyond a sort of effort to seek adequate buses to seeking ways to transform education in that rural community. And uh, again, Jay Wade is wearing, uh, plays an active role in, in pushing the plaintiffs of that, of that case to think differently about whether or not the goal is toward equalization of schools or a dismantling of segregation. And in his dissent in the federal courthouse in Charleston, he actually used the phrase, correct me if I'm wrong, segregation per se is unequal. unequal. That's right. That's right. And I think the pivotal, I mean, wearing is, is usually important, but really it's Marshall and, mm -hmm. the, and, the, and the lawyers who are, you know, pursuing a Southwide strategy. And as this bus challenge moves to an equalization challenge, then it becomes time to go to go all the way. And along the way, people lost their jobs. You know, I think of the Briggs family, you know, what they went through. I mean, people really risked so much. But again, we're, we're hopeful and confident that they could change things for their children. And the Briggs case would become a part of what would eventually be the challenge to school segregation. And, and it was the first case of the mm -hmm. series of cases that comprised Brown. Brown versus Board of Education. That's right. And I think many would argue the, a, the, a pivotal, or the pivotal case in terms of the glaring disparities between the education opportunities of black and white students. Mm -hmm. Of course, the Brown decision came down, the reaction across the state, particularly in the news community and the newspapers, Pat, as, as you and Bobby both know, they either reported it in sensational or they didn't report things at all. Right. Of course, they reacted very vehemently to the Brown decision, opposing it. And there was an interesting pamphlet written by a group of white South Carolinians called South Carolinians Speak, which supported the peaceful desegregation of the schools. And what happened to those individuals. There was a white woman in Rock Hill who had her home bombed. Mm -hmm. um, and I talked to a retired Presbyterian clergyman in the Low Country about a year ago who had been one of those individuals. And the church he was serving didn't want any part of him. I mean, it was... No, th th those stories are so important to, to remind people of how 
challenging it was and, and the nature of the resistance and the importance of the federal government having to do something. But also, Walter, as you point out, that there were white South Carolinians who, who were changed by the civil rights movement and really you know, came into this place where they supported. Uh, and of course, the, probably the, one of the most best known instances was Dean Travelstead of the College of Education right. at the University of South Carolina, mm-hmm. who thought that teachers, they were training all white teachers, needed to be prepared for this. And because he did this, didn't make any difference that he had tenure he was fired. Well, this is also, I think, that connects our discussion about events in these rural areas to this voting rights bill of 65, is that there were many who believed that this would be a catalyst, that the Brown decision would really be a, a point to, to, to lead the nation in a different way, and it does. However, as Dr. Sullivan just mentioned, when you look at the backlash, if you look at the efforts to undermine the economic viability of families, the violence people experience, even in a place like South Carolina, this is why the vote was even more important, because it was yet one more battle to fight. Um, and that was actually a, a theme of the NACP of South Carolina. Uh, it was the battle of the ballot was a, was a campaign, because they realized that until voting rights was secured, all the other promises in terms of education, housing, health care, and employment could never fully be realized if African Americans remain disfranchised. What is ironic about these local areas in the very same area of Clarendon County, so you push forward a decade. In 1966, Martin Luther King Jr. comes back to King Street um, in an effort of voter registration and voter um, education because there's a fear that there are still efforts in, in these rural areas to undermine the Voting Rights Act of 65. And so he comes, and one of the discoveries of, of our research project is, is this footage um, from one of the local news channels of King delivering a powerful speech on Mother's Day of 1966. And in that speech, you see a cross-section of notable civil rights figures, Matthew Perry, Benjamin Mack of Columbia, but mothers and fathers, young kids who are there, who are just in tune with what this great civil rights leader is saying. Uh, and it, I think it amplifies to us the fact that the movement was a movement of many. It was a movement of multiple organizations. And so on that day, it was an ironic coalition of the SCLC, CORE, the NAACP. Okay, people probably today don't know what... So the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the Congress on Racial Equality, Mm -hmm. uh, SCOPE, which was a student movement sponsored by the SCLC, and the NAACP, who are coming together for voter mobilization, because 66 is where throughout South Carolina, throughout the Deep South, African Americans are not only registering to vote, engaging in citizenship schools, but they are running in campaigns and seeking office at unprecedented levels. So it sets the stage in South Carolina that by 1970, that movement leads to the election of three African Americans who serve in the South Carolina General Assembly. And they just had a reunion, Herbert Fielding from Charleston, I.S. Levy Johnson, and, and Jim Felder. Mm-hmm. And Jim Felder's actually done a little memoir. Yeah. Well, Jim Felder was part of the voter education project. Uh, and so part of his job was to canvass the entire state to train people about voting and running for elective office and about the important principle of one man, one vote, and also uh, the single-member districts. Single-member districts, they're now, what, 24 African Americans in the House? I think that's right. And we have a black congressman, 
one of the ironies of Congressman Clyburn's district is it very much mirrors a district created in the 1870s to put as many black voters as possible into one district. When they first created the new six, I was amazed at the similarities. Mm -hmm. The purposes were, were totally different. In 1872, it was to take black voters out of white districts so that there would only be one black congressman, and this was to put as many voters together so that a minority could have a chance to be elected. So the single-member district is, is, I think, still a controversial issue, not just because it, a, a black person is elected, but it has created certainly political polarization, not just in South Carolina, but everywhere. But that's sort of there to begin with, in a way, polarization. I think part of the what, what, what some call incumbency protection is, is that it, it shows the ongoing political debates and calculations that I think extend from the, the voting rights and civil rights campaigns mm -hmm. about how do you provide access and opportunity to all who seek it. Now, one of the challenges of the gerrymandering that creates mm -hmm. these districts is that they, they demonstrate in some large degree the continued segregation of our state so that you can actually, you can zigzag these lines in ways that protect incumbencies. And I think part of the recent challenges of South Carolina in terms of voting rights have been along some, along some of these lines. Whether or not the way congressional districts have been drawn weaken African-American voting strength in other areas outside of the sixth congressional district. And there is a Supreme Court challenge now, not on a South Carolina district, but on, I think on a Maryland congressional district. It, it, it's very difficult when you think of, you know, what what the goals are. I mean, there was Shaw v. Reno back in 1993. And then you look at the Gamillion case from Alabama where they gerrymandered. It, it, it plays, cuts in both ways. You know, what are people attempting to do? But, but I think this effort to try to build um, across racial lines, you know, political constituencies and, and concerns, you know, I think just talking about the 40s, 50s, and 60s and this energy that goes into voter participation. And you mentioned voter education schools. I think of Septima Clark and, you know, this just civic energy and, and just to get people to participate and to participate knowledgeably. Uh, and now what we're fighting around or, or really concerned about is these voter ID laws that, I mean, there's a debate about what are they attempting to do, but the energy around civic participation and the fact that how politics relates to your life and matters uh, and how to be involved. And, uh, you know, it, it seems that that is a, a, a dimension that is, um, again, from this period, that is uh, such a powerful story of how change happens, but that, again, it's not necessarily dramatic and, and in a moment, but it, it's long-haul building and people using their talents to participate in, in these ways with voter education projects and, and efforts like that. And I should say, too, the, the, the individuals who are part of the architects of this change that Dr. Sullivan and I and others have talked to and interviewed, they're careful to remind us not to romanticize this period too greatly because mm -hmm. the struggles were real. There were internal struggles. But I also think that as, as we look presently on our horizon, it's very obvious that there are challenges to voting rights. Um, there are impediments to voting rights. But there's also another real concern of many of those veterans uh, that is voter apathy. Voter, lack of voter participation, and whatever kind of civic movement there was 50 years ago, the sense that for whatever reasons, people, black and white, 
are not engaged civically, politically, are not exercising the right to vote, even when they when they're they are fully able and capable of doing so. And I think that is where there's a lot of reflection about what could be done politically to kind of convince people that there is every reason to vote. Why is it that people do not follow the lead of Donella Wilson, who at 106 does not have an excuse why she can't vote? She feels it is an obligation and a responsibility to do so, and that is not commonly shared among many voters, many potential voters. The voter education workshops, the, the participation, yeah, we just had a city election in, in Columbia and small turnout. I mean, mm-hmm. not much into double digits. It was a minuscule fraction. In fact, even in some some areas where there was so fairly predictable turnout, heavy turnout, that was not the case. I mean, maybe there was no strong name on the top of the ticket, but, but that, in my judgment, is not a good excuse. Um, I mean, I mean, I think I think there is this sense that these local elections city council and school board don't really matter. And I think if we look around the country, we're discovering they do, um, and they have consequences. Mm-hmm. And, but I don't think typical voters necessarily see that or encourage to see that. And that, and that it's beyond the ballot box. You know, again, what we're talking about, uh, which isn't in the too distant past, is that people were organized and formed organizations and, and really helped to shape. So it's not just voting on election day, which is critical, but mm-hmm. Beyond that, you know, how do you help shape uh, who's running? Do you run? Who runs for these offices, these local offices? I think that that's an important. Well, and this is not just a racial issue. Getting people to be willing to stand for public office. Uh, I have a friend who, after serving on the school board, she did a term or two and said that was enough. Mm-hmm. And she tried to talk some people into running for her seat, people who had been involved in schools, and they just being in public life is not pleasant these days. No, it's challenging, and it's public service. I mean, when we think of what, you know, our students, how they see their futures and mm-hmm. uh, what they plan to do with their lives, and it's it's interesting how few are even thinking about about that. I mean, public service, the challenges, as you point out, and then, giving you know, doing something that's not necessarily going to make you a lot of money, <laughs> you know, but it shapes your world and your communities, and... Um, and I think that's why when you teach this history, students are astounded when they really see, you know, what it took and the kinds of commitments people made and inspired, too. I mean, it, it, it's, um, it, it, it really is a, a touchstone in ways that, that has relevancy to the uh, present. And that's why I think, I mean, we, we come at it from a kind of a selfish perspective in some degrees, but history, history matters. And it's incredibly important. And I think the civil rights pioneers recognize this. One of the unsung figures that we've discovered in the Columbia 63 Project was a gentleman from, from the Ridgewood community named Benjamin Mack, who was a chief lieutenant of the SCLC. And part of Benjamin Mack's strategy for voter registration was to begin by teaching Negro history. And there are these lesson plans in the SCLC records in Atlanta where Mack talks about Reconstruction the 14th and 15th Amendments, how they came into being, and why it's important to know those individuals who, who endured tremendous sacrifice for voting so that you might see why your vote matters. And I think, you know, in my own mind, I like to believe that the more history we are able to to read and process, I think the more we will sense the importance of why execution of one's constitutional rights are so important. You're both still in the classrooms. 
I retired in 2012, and one of the things the last 10 years or so, I, made no difference whether the student was black or white, the period of history we're talking about was terra incognita. They, they had no clue what their grandparents might have thought about an issue, again, be it, be it black or white. They just, well, this is the world now. What are you talking about? Drinking fountains and difficulty to register. And I, I talk about my difficulty to register to vote, and well, we don't have to worry about that now. Well, it, I mean, as you point out, it's 50 years ago. We're saying 50 years ago, the Voting Rights Act. And as someone who's been teaching for a while, uh, you know, th- that there was a time when students felt some relationship to this history, but it's 50 years. Mm-hmm. But but I agree. I think the history is a powerful, uh, it's lessons, It's it, you see the shoulders you stand on, you understand what it means that something is long-term, that you think about yourself as a citizen, what that means. It, it can help people not just understand the past better, but see their current situation and, and see themselves. You know, yeah. who are they and what, what what kind of role will they play in their communities and, and during their lifetime? Because uh, the country, we know, faces many challenges that really rest on politics and civic participation to think about how we're going to, to deal with them. I think there are still ongoing struggles that, that that are real, and and the, and the challenges in, among people, uh, in terms of issues of poverty, educational access, continue. Mm-hmm. And, I, and my and my hope is that the movement and momentum around the recovery of Charleston channels in those directions. If you remember, uh, when there were all of these public protests about bringing the flag down, uh, there were the discussions about what's next. The flag comes down, and then what's next? How do you mobilize individuals? Um, and I think the other thing that I find um, encouraging as a teacher and as someone who who lives among undergraduates, uh, many of whom are, are not terribly politically engaged, is that there are these moments that that materialize where you see students beginning to sort of have a sense of history and their place uh, in history. The most obvious example of that as we speak today is what just happened in Missouri, where young people challenged the status quo and sought the um, resignation of a chancellor and a president of a university, and it happened. Now, that is unheard of. Yeah, but it, I don't want to diminish that, Bobby, but had the football team not been involved, would that really have... The majority of whom were African-American. But yes, yes, I understand, but... No, I, think, I think all that comes together, but a football team that is compelled to make a statement based on the mobilization of a student body... Um, well, it's a, a convergence. Right. I, again, when you look historically, it's a con- it's not a one thing. Right. Things come together at a particular moment, and um, and I think that's an interesting example to watch. You know what what happened there. Alfred has given me the wind up signal. We need to to wrap it up. Professors Pat Sullivan and Bobby Donaldson from the University of South Carolina. I want to thank you so much for being with us today on the Journal. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I did. One of the things I enjoyed the most about our conversation was looking at the importance of background to the Voting Rights Act of 1965. What was going on here in South Carolina? Who were the players? It was not just something that dropped out of the sky in 1965. 
but the groundwork, the civic involvement, the commitment that had gone on across the racial divide in South Carolina prior to 1965 was very, very important. And as both Bobby and Pat pointed out, history does matter. How did we get to where we are today? If you don't understand that, I'm not sure you'll know where we're going to go tomorrow. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal.